to episode 36 of Tennis with an Accent. This is Anand and uh, Sakib. And we're now a day away from the finish of the US Open. And the dust is settled. There's a lot to uh, reminisce and talk about, about uh, the two weeks of action. Some of it, frankly, was very confusing for me. Um, the results were really surprising. And Rafa won, Sloan Stevens won. And uh, what are the implications for the rest of the year? So that's what we're going to talk about today. So yeah, and uh, like you said, day removed from uh, the last major of the year. I'm still having uh, those uh, that Grand Slam hangover or depression. Yeah, it's it's a funny feeling that's always uh, stayed stays you know with you as a tennis fan, uh, especially after uh, it, it lingers on for a few days. But this might this one might be a quick one for me. Well, I want to think about it as the whole year, um, and this is the finish to the year, right? For, at least for the Grand, grand Slams, and. Obviously, having Roger and Rafa share the four Grand Slams, there's something poetic about that whole thing. Um, but having said that, I would rather have seen that come to a conclusion through a Roger-Rafa semifinal. That did not happen. There's also something ironic about that. Uh, Novak Djokovic. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, he's the guy who's probably sitting there and wondering when he sees Kevin Anderson on the other side of the net in the final. He knows that there's, there's something that he needs to do to come back. All right, so I'm sure there's plenty to discuss. What do you have in mind uh, for the Open? What are, of course, uh, Nadal, uh, you didn't see it coming, especially at the beginning of the year when we spoke here. And uh, But since Moya came on board, uh, you became a believer. But if I'm correct, uh, you became a believer as far as Roland Garros was concerned. So this hardcore success has to be, uh, I don't want to say it was coming, even though Nadal was one of the top favorites. How do you see this uh, Yeah, unfolding? let me say this. Uh, I mean, we obviously know what happened to Rafa the last three or four years. Um, he's had results that have been tailing off. He's, he lost to many players in close matches, which normally he used to win. Uh, he was getting overpowered. He did not even look as fit as he did in his prime. And he was. it looked like he was slowing down as well. So if you think about last year's US Open, Luca Pui out-hit him, outlasted him uh, the year before... Pognini um, came back and won that match in five sets again. I just didn't think Rafa had it in him to come back and win a slam, especially the way Joker was dominating. Um, but then this year, after Moya uh, joined his camp, I think the big change for Rafa was his mental attitude. Uh, I really started hearing him speak differently about his prospects. If you recall last year, Sakib, uh, Rafa would actually go out and say that he thought he was going to lose sometimes ahead of matches. He would say he was not the favorite. He would sandbag. And this year, I saw that change in, in his body language and sometimes in how he spoke about himself. Obviously, the Australian Open result helped him, helped his confidence, as he himself said. Um, but I think Carlos Moya had, deserves a lot of credit for turning this story around. Yeah, I was going to agree there because we gave a lot of credit to Boris Becker, who came and resurrected. Uh, Novak Djokovic ship uh, a few years ago and I always believed that Marian Vaida and the team there were as instrumental as Becker because uh, Djokovic's uh, off years were not as bad as the so-called recent decline that we had witnessed in Nadal's game but uh, so rightfully so Moya should deserve a lot of credit and uh, there's uh, the aggression that Nadal displayed against Del Potro 
which I don't think comes naturally to Rafa because he is a, still a defensive mind player. But that kind of showed like he has that offensive game and he was also playing it very fast that day. So to me, that was a turning point. Uh, we'll talk more about the draw, how a lot of people are saying both Federer and Nadal, the last three slams have been pretty much uncontested, especially this US Open one. But it's not Nadal's fault uh, because, you know, whoever's in front of you, you have to play them. Uh, how much do you make of the draw? Uh, you know, it's still early. Uh, he only won this thing yesterday. But uh, do you see, do you hold it against him? Because this is one of the easiest draws in the last 30 years. Well, I have to say this. It's not the draw for me so much as it's who's missing in these tournaments. Um, I mean, Federer could have been on the other side of the draw. But um, the fact that you don't have five of the top 10 players uh, playing in this tournament, including both the finalists, uh, from last year, I think that has, in my mind, the impact, the bigger impact on this entire year. Um, the year was, it started off on a thrilling note with Roger defeating Raja, I mean Rafa, and uh, then I think the rest of the year for me has been very tepid because slowly I've come to realize that the quality of tennis on on men's tour has has come down because of all these players missing. And Roger and Rafa have had it too easy getting into the final rounds. And I actually think a well-rested Rafa is what won him the U.S. Open because he had too many easy matches going on. Uh, And we'll never know because, you know, this rivalry kind of had a... I'm talking about the Federer-Nadal rivalry. This rivalry had a little different narrative because Federer at 35 and now 36 seems to have found a new way to play Nadal. And uh, we will never know if that match were actually to happen. What would have, uh, because in hindsight, it looks like Nadal would have destroyed Federer. But I think the recent uh, recency uh, of results in that rivalry could have played a different role. Federer obviously came in with some sort of compromised preparation. His back maybe not allowing him to move freely. And, you know, he pretty much gave it away in his press conference that uh, his confidence, body, and, you know, the game didn't come together, even though he looked better against Feliciano Lopez and uh, Philip Cole Schreiber. So that's a match that, again, did not happen in New York and maybe, you know, who knows uh, what's going to be the narrative going in next year. But it's fair to say that it's it's an uphill task for this match to happen. And that being said, I think Nadal uh, played his best tennis against Del Potro. And in the finals, uh, his tactics, I wasn't too impressed, but it got the job done because Anderson was either, uh, you know, missing those volleys. And, uh, and Nadal kind of creates that aura, don't get me wrong, but... Uh, this was a different Nadal that well, I saw against Del Potro. He was, he was just a superior player, right? Um, both no, no, there's no doubt that he's a superior player, but the tactics against Juan Martin were very offensive. Uh, and he was the aggressor after losing the first set. And uh, against Anderson, it was more like he was going to play that defensive role and wait for Anderson to miss. Which again, you know, Nadal has made a living out of that. And I don't you know, mean to shortchain the achievement. So I was a little surprised to see. I thought something from the previous day would carry over. No, I, I think tactically, Nadal played it perfect. He knew that Del Potro was exhausted. He was tired. He was taking time away from him, um, was rushing his points, was attacking, as you said. Against Anderson, he knew that Anderson could never last against him, um, again, you know, going mano-mano on the baseline. So he played it perfectly. Um, the question is, for me, on the other side, with Anderson... First, let me say, very a great result for Anderson. He took advantage of the draw, came through, and he himself said so. Um, so, all kudos to him. But his tactics in the final 
when you're trying to overpower the other player and he's standing far out in the back, I just thought he played some bad service games on his part. He was not serving wide at all. He was trying to ace him every time. He was putting a lot on his first serves, missing big. Um, For me, Anderson really didn't show up. I think uh, it's unfair to say that uh, because it was his first time and he's a late bloomer. Uh, We don't know if he would be able to replicate a major final and we know how scarce major final appearances. Which is why I would have thought he would have given it enough thought and showed up for that final. Like, uh, like is, Andres Gomez and some of the Look, I mean, guys. look, Andres Gomez played Agassi, which was an upstart back then, he was, even though Agassi was a firm favorite. This is uh, an all-time legend here who's going for number 16 and number 3 in New York. I think Nadal was very aware, if you look at the strategy, that Anderson, despite, you know, the big serve and, you know, you would think you would associate a good volley, being, him being a South African, but Anderson is cl- clearly very reluctant to come to net. And that, that's probably the reason Nadal, you know, gave so much ground, standing and returning. Uh, look, I don't want to dwell too much into this because post-mortem analysis, you know, we all can look doctors now because we know what, what happened. We do. So let me ask you the same question you asked me of Rafa, right? You, Rafa clearly benefited to some extent from the draw and missing people. What about Anderson? Do you, do you, did, did you see him come through if he had any of the other big four on the, on the, on the other side? Look, it's the honest answer. There's the same question I asked Creek yesterday, and Creek said uh, when the draw opened up, especially after Andy Murray uh, withdrew, uh, he thought Anderson was one of the shortlisted names in that bottom section that might come through. And of course, uh, Sasha Zvere was a big part of the uh, that draw. And once uh, you know, you you called it brilliantly, by the way, guys. Anand, uh, you know, we should have put that out on a podcast. But Anand called the Chorich upset was where when he was not even making any doubts about it. So The only thing I got right all year. Yeah, the, 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 those <laughs> are the easy, you know, those are more difficult ones to call. Everybody can get Federer Nadal to semis. So, yeah, good for you. So, I think, yeah, Zverev was there and after Zverev lost, Anderson and Query, it became like, and, and Pui for me was a little bit of a disappointing loss. We'll get to that later. But Anderson and Query, they played a match in Montreal and uh, Anderson dismissed him very quickly. And uh, again, I made Kevin Anderson wait for me 10 minutes and I was still sitting in the Roger Federer press conference. <laughs> I feel so bad. Anyway, that's uh, that's a Kevin Anderson Kevin side Anderson's story. Kevin Anderson's used to waiting, as you can see. He yeah, not long for me. For the I mean, final. he probably waits for other, yeah, <laughs> other opportunities. So yeah, Anderson definitely overachieved. But, uh, you know, this is how uh, these sometimes these stories go. And now he's a one-time major finalist and his career is going to be, you know, re-evaluated and he probably reset some expectations. Uh, to answer your question, yeah, he was not on my shortlist, but I'm not surprised uh, after the Pui loss that, you know, it, it pretty much became clear it's going to be either him or Query. Yeah, so I, I think what, where I'm getting at finally is, in my mind, and I will say this right now, and I know we'll have a chance to discuss it, is the men's US Open was lame. It It just did not live up to the standard of tennis we've been seeing in the past few years. And it's continuing, for me, a worrying trend in, uh, you know, across Grand Slams. Um, so I hope that's reversed in the beginning of the year. But um, if you look at it and contrast it with the women's side, some amazing stories. Starting all the way from the beginning in the first round, Sharapova beating uh, Simona Halep. This was one of those magical tournaments for, for women's tennis and especially for American tennis. Yes and no. Definitely, without a doubt, I don't want to be devil's advocate. I 100% agree. WTA stole the show. There were a lot of stellar matches. And, uh, you know, the marquee matchups happened and people came, the girls came out to play. 
uh, unlike on the ATP, we had some good stories like Schwartzman and Karina Busta because these are still very good stories to me. But uh, I mean, Karina Busta, who beat uh, how many qualifiers to get to the semifinals? I mean, then same as Nadal, you know, like it's the easiest draw. And that, that's my point is women's tennis, on the other hand, had really compelling matchups and the matches, many of them went to the tiebreak in the third set. No, no, definitely let's stick to that. But let, we cannot shortchange Karina Busta because that's how draws work. So what are the big takeaways from the WTA side of things? Uh, I think for yeah. me, it's it's one of parity. So we've been complaining about parity in women's tennis over the last three or four years. We cannot seem to predict who's going to come out and win a slam. And that's been a problem, right? Because on the other side, you've got these amazing rivalries in men's tennis, Djokovic, Rafa, Roger, Rafa, and so on. And women's tennis did not seem to have that, and that seemed to be a problem. But I think three years of parity, what it's done to women's tennis is it's created a really strong core group of women's players. I mean, starting with Muguruza, and then you have Venus Williams coming back, and you have Halep, and now you have the young Americans making their mark. And suddenly, everyone seems relevant. Everyone seems like they can compete. Plushkova, uh, who was just recently number one, could have been a contender, but she got beaten by Keys. And these suddenly become weighty matches. And now you want to wait and see who's going to emerge from this crop and actually win multiple slams. Muguruza has already won two. Stevens has now won one. Ostapenko looks good to win more. And I'm, I'm excited. I'm actually looking forward to see who's going to emerge from this and and start winning more slams so uh, that for me that that parity which was there is actually what's become exciting suddenly in women's tennis it is and i don't uh, disagree to this uh, point you just made but to me both uh, tours are pretty much like uh, a year after you know like presidential election you know you kind of <laughs> inherit the situation that preceded so the the narrative in the men's side was you know big three or big four or stan wawrinka so no one was winning besides these three or four guys. And Wawrinka joined the party at majors. Uh, similarly, in the women's tennis, it was quite the opposite. It was Serena Williams and the rest. So there are a lot of quality players and you take uh, the best player out uh, of the tournament and then it just becomes a very evenly matched field. Venus Williams adding, of course, her you know legendary flavor to this by reaching uh, three, uh, two, two major finals. But women's field just showed like you take one d- dominant player out, so which is, again, not a bad thing. And there's so many potential, you know, you can pick maybe 10, 12 players who can win each major till Serena comes back. On the men's side, you're right. People are just not used to contending. Sasha Zverev is definitely, you know, he's going to be in the conversation. Uh, the moment Djokovic and Murray withdrew, it pretty much became, you know, Federer and Nadal in one half. And then who's just going to fill, fill in the blank on the other side? So let's talk about that, actually. I mean, uh, going back, switching back again, who are the big disappointments? I mean, Sasha Zverev clearly up there. Uh, I actually don't think he was the biggest disappointment because I honestly haven't seen him do anything in Grand Slams. Um, but th- let me pick four or five names here and you tell me uh, who who you think is a bigger disappointment. Was it Kyrgios? Was it Dominic Thiem? Was it Luka Pui? Uh, Dimitrov? Who who is Who really, I think, fell flat on their face? I mean, uh, Dimitrov is definitely the president of the disappointing club. He's just, you know, the guy... <laughs> he, I mean... It's his career has been pretty rough in a lot of ways, and we've discussed it, you know, a few weeks ago when uh, he finally uh, broke through winning Cincinnati. I mean, he's a product of you know the expectations, and but there's something missing, uh, and this was his ample opportunity, and he the way he lost to Rublev, 
leaves a lot to be desired. And I, I remember Matt Zemek saying, you know, this could be the Pliskova moment for uh, for Dimitrov, uh, the Cincinnati win, and he might use that as a platform to win more. But clearly, Dimitrov doing his own thing, yeah. Yeah, a lot of uh, uh, folks on Twitter I know and a lot of Rafa fans, they were scared of the Dimitrov uh, quarterfinal, you know, that loomed large. Of course, it did not happen and Rublev showed up and kudos to Rublev uh, for delivering, you know, that kind of performance when uh, the focus was on Shapovalov and Sasha Zverev rightfully. Uh, and going back to your question, uh, I'm not disappointed in team, uh, even though I am that he wasted match points, but I think he made progress. Com- uh, last year, he got completely owned by Del Potro in the yes. tournament. And this year, even though Del Potro was fighting uh, uh, flu-like symptoms, uh, team, you know, had a lot of, uh, you know, he was dictating that match and it was on his racket, you know, when he... Isn't, uh, it, isn't it troubling, though, for team that mentally, this is not the first time this year that he's held match points and he's lost? Look, that's not easy. No matter who you are, team, or I've seen a lot of guys go through that when you start squandering those leads. It it, it doesn't. It stays in your system. Svitolina on the women's side too is yeah, going I through mean, a similar slump. A lot of people like Sabatini and Novotna in the past have served for Wimbledon titles. You know, like Safin in his last year was struggling closing out people. He would win the first set. So uh, confidence is contagious both ways. You know, overconfidence and lack of confidence. So, but with team, let's take uh, a few more moments here. Uh, I think he reminds me a lot of Muster. Uh, again, you know, I'm not going to do any commentary on tennis technique because uh, we are club players at best. But I think uh, it's open secret uh, that team struggles against, you know, uh, big servers and hard courts because, you know, he, he probably they take uh, time away from him or his return game. But even in his losses, those are positive results because I saw the match against Kevin Anderson in D.C. Mm. and this Del Potro match. These are two big, big guys, big servers, power hitters. Team almost beat them. And I think team is... The guy who is just, you know, known to work hard with uh, Bresnik and his team. He probably overplays. He's slightly older than, you know, Sasha and Nick and the others. Uh, so, I wouldn't put him in the disappointment category fully, even though I thought, you know... So, it is Sasha and Nick, then, that would be the big disappointment. Sasha's still young. I think we're going to still stick to the Lester mantra. Like, you know, let's not review... You know, let's not be harsh on this guy. He's still a work in progress. You yourself said a few weeks ago that we may not have seen the best of Sasha... And it's only a matter of time when Sasha starts putting, you know, these deep runs together. Uh, Nick, on the other hand, is clearly, you know, he's going through the motion. I read somewhere that since the passing of uh, some family member, you know, he hasn't fully committed to tennis. Uh, You you know, it's just, I hope he gets his act together. He looks pumped, you know, like uh, he looked pumped coming into the Open and then had that, you know, uh, injury issue and uh, lost to countryman Millman. He's, uh, I think, getting ready in Belgium for a Davis Cup clash, and Kokinakis is back. I know we're kind of like drifting away, but I think this is a big week for Kyrgios, and he can use Davis Cup as a platform to resurrect some respect, especially back in Australia, and how a lot of times this guy gets misunderstood, rightfully or wrongfully. You know, that's a whole different podcast. So, yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's very straightforward. Uh, ultimately, all of these guys, their legacy is going to be judged by how they did in slams. Uh, you're right about Sasha. He, he's he's got a lot of time on his hands, but boy, did he have a golden opportunity here uh, to cash in, and he did not. Um, but I think the golden opportunity is more applicable to your candidate, Luca Pui, because I thought he's going to make this run his own, and uh, he fell apart against Schwartzman. And Schwartzman, I think, is a very I don't you know what happened in that match, right? Yes, he, of course. Schwartzman was leading, and then uh, he called an injury timeout, and Pui clearly at the handshake. Uh, you know, was not happy. And Pui's team also had some remarks later on. 
regarding you know Schwartzman's uh, uh, injury timeout, which is well within the rules, and he really did seem hurt. Again, I don't know these guys personally, but Schwartzman seems like a genuine guy. I don't think he used it. That's what they to... say: player opponent, not their injury, right? Yeah. So for me, Luca Pui again has the game. If you look at his game, he's really you know he has power, he has finesse. Uh, I thought again this was his opportunity to come through. And th- this this is what makes me really worried about men's tennis right now is a whole bunch of talented players who have had opportunities to break through. And who do you see on the other side of the net of Rafa? Kevin Anderson. I mean, it's really a joke, Saki. I mean, Todd Martin, uh, Cedric Piolin, and uh, Kevin Curran, you, you've had these like, you know. All in their mid to late 20s at the time, remember? Yeah, and then, uh, you know, thanks to Safin, Johansson won the Australian Open. So things have happened, you know. <laughs> and those were the dark days of tennis. Would you agree? It, it is, but uh, you can't hold it against Anderson just because, you know, if he lacks personality or charisma, I mean, he still has to fill the spot. You know, he's breathing, what is number nine now, race to London. He most probably will get in because he's going to use this momentum uh, and play a good fall season. Uh, but I, I, I don't think there's an issue with men's tennis. I think it's more the physicality. And uh, we can come back to uh, maybe another discussion because uh, it's about the ball, it's about the strings. And even Lendl said yes uh, recently to, I think, Richard Evans, who was also a guest on the podcast uh, few weeks ago we haven't still released it and Lendl said uh, indoors uh, tennis especially is very taxing the way you know these guys are getting uh, involved in physical rallies and sometimes the effects can be felt all the way uh, from your ankles up to to the hip and maybe that's what was undoing of Andy Murray last year when he went on this absolute tier winning so many matches after US Open it could well have been what made Roger also struggle towards the end of the tournament I mean, I, I actually think if you look across the board, how many players were truly fit? Who And if you look at that, I would say there's Rafa at the top. There's a couple of guys maybe in the top 20 who are at peak fitness. Anderson was coming back from, uh, from an injury. And Del Potro was not fit either. He was the other semifinalist. And if you look at the really young guys, yeah, they were fit, but they weren't fit enough to win. I mean, th- this is the problem here right now is... Yeah, and it's a revolving door. I mean, you rightfully said some parts for sure. I agree that it's a revolving door. And uh, the fit of this year were the herding of last year. And maybe the trend changes, you know, come Australia. Uh, you know, Wawrinka, Murray and Nishikori, all these guys come back and take their, you know, so-called rightful places back in the top echelon. It's going to be interesting to see what Australian Open brings. Uh, before we, you know, keep digressing into this topic i know we've discussed this many times here i want to ask you a few things you are a big roger federer fan but just to be objective uh the narrative after each win you know rightfully so it's nadal's moment uh you know changes but a lot of time these comments come uh come up like paul McNamee and mats willander uh there's big discussion going on or at least it provoked a big discussion that nadal is a better better volleyer than roger federer what is your take on that i mean that's that's just Funny. I think they were trying to be stand-up comedians. Uh, no, they were very serious. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let, let's be serious here. Uh, Nadal, the volleyer, um, is someone who is a reactive volleyer. I mean, he's setting up his points and showing up at the net maybe four or five shots into the um, into the rally. Roger Federer is using the volley as a weapon to come in and actually make a play. I think there's there's a clear difference and. 
I actually, even if even if that's the case, I mean, let's just say that Rogers' range of volleys, his drop volleys, and his ability to push the ball to all corners of the court, I don't think there's even a comparison between these two. Okay, fair enough. I think a lot of people feel that way with no fault to Nadal. He's a very solid volleyer, but, you know, it's not in his nature to take chances. I think he creates a point and finishes a point and technically... You I know, think Rafa is an underrated volleyer. That's probably what people are saying. But in saying it enough number of times, he's becoming an overrated volleyer. Okay, fair enough. So, another question I have in mind is uh, of this uh, narrative of Federer and Nadal. I know there are other players, but do you think media sometimes just... I asked this to Bialik and use the word lazy and he kind of schooled me, rightfully so. But my intent was something else. It's just when there's so much knowledge and so much, uh, you have an obligation to promote certain players. It's just not about the big names. So you I, think I, it's, I know it's, I know. there's a rant somewhere there, Sakib. I, you, you, are you referring to some of the coverage that happened with how they covered Roger and in the Cole Scheiber match? No, that's separate. That That's a very genuine rant and I think... Uh, I think a lot of people will agree. I think Fowler and McEnroe, some of these... Uh, these, these Tell guys, us what happened. I think most people watched. There was like some sort of a joke made on Cole Schreiber in his box. It was funny for maybe a second. Uh, and not funny if you've listened to McEnroe before because, you know, these kind of jokes do happen. Uh, yeah, and then just kept going on. And I even switched uh, channels on the Watch ESPN app. Uh, Robbie Koenig, you know, one of my favorite commentators was there. Uh, but the problem was uh, the feed was at least good 40, 50 seconds delayed. So... I'm watching the match and Nakul or someone is texting me and I know the score. So I switch back to McEnroe. But yeah, I think it's it's kind of disgraceful. Uh, it's in bad taste to carry on. And then they speak during points. That's again a pet peeve of mine. Like what Lester said, right? You know, there's never pin drop silence. They never let you absorb the game. It's, you know, Chris Fowler's way of doing commentary, which is fine. He's very knowledgeable. Don't get me wrong. He picked up the sport. Uh, in company of Cahill and, I, 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 and think it's, I think it's a fair point that what McEnroe brought to commentary is now actually ruining him, right? I mean, he brought in a lot of native knowledge, spontaneous, you know, opinions and things like that. And over the years, he's just become, if I may say so, a caricature of himself. Um, it's It's been really uh, painful at times to listen to uh, to that, that whole box. Okay, enough of the rant and thanks for, you know, letting me air that. But <laughs> let me still uh, pose a question back to you. But do you think uh, sometimes the game, uh, the coverage is just revolving around Federer, Venus? Rightfully so, these guys have earned that right. But do you think sometimes it's, uh, it's lazy or what's the other word? Maybe they're neglecting other stories. Maybe they have an obligation to promote like a complete picture and they just stay focused on, you know, who's going to be the GOAT, the, you know, arms race of like who wins more majors. It's all exciting, but... Uh, sometimes they have to just, you know, show some light on other stories as well. I, I, I mean, I, I would say that it is, it can be seem very short-sighted, right? And we can see what happened on the women's side. Uh, a lot of the top marquee players were playing on the side courts. Uh, they didn't get any kind of exposure. And you had players like Jeannie Bouchard playing on center court. Um, I think the same extends to media. Really, they want to talk about what they think people want to hear about. Unfortunately, it's, it's a catch-22. Unless you start talking about these players who are, uh, you know, ranked outside the top 10 or 20, you're never going to see people start to want to follow them. And um, unless there's a truly exciting talent like a Shapovalov who's come out and beat Rafa at, at a, you know, at a major tournament, 
Um, it just seems like it takes a lot for the media to focus on and even a good story like a Rublev. Um, it's, it's unfortunate. And I think it shows everywhere, not just media. It's also tournament organizers, how they hand out wild cards, how they put them in these, uh, you know, uh, the, the smaller courts. I just feel like overall... Um, let's, let's talk about Sloane Stevens. Uh, I know in the podcast with Matt Semek, she was one of my dark horses and I believed, you know, she has the game and ability uh, to lock horns with the best. But even I didn't see her this close that she's going to lift the trophy. Yeah, I mean, what I saw many years ago, three or four, I, I don't know, I can't remember exactly, but she played Anna Ivanovic at the US Open and I watched her live. And I saw an amazing talent, very athletic, great defensive skills, just the ability to hit a winner out of nowhere, but then very inconsistent also and never played the good points well. And that's what separates the, the champs from, uh, you know, the people, uh, you know, the also runs. And for me, Sloane Stevens, I thought was lost to tennis because then she went away and she got injured and I, I just didn't see her coming back and winning a slam. Um, she seemed to me like, you know, many of the lost generation on the men's side, like with Dimitrovs. Uh, so it was a huge surprise. And then, you know, she's not really that old. She's only 24. And suddenly you're looking at someone who's built the confidence to win a slam. She always had the game. Um, and now it's it's looking like there's a cohort with her, uh, two or three other Americans who are also looking really strong. Sometimes that can actually help. Uh, when you have two or three of your friends or your buddies on the tour who are also doing well, I think that really uh, keeps you motivated. And uh, I, I see really good things in store for her. Okay, correct me if you don't feel it feel the same way. Uh, her match against Venus Williams uh, kind of reminded me, uh, you know, a lot of those matches when, you know, Agassi played Connors back in the day. And more recently when Djokovic played Federer. Uh, you know, Federer is a crowd darling in uh, New York. And same for Venus. So... Sloan to me was really clinical in the execution. You know, she didn't let the crowd. She wasn't the villain, but she definitely wasn't getting support like of an American player would get. You know, on Ash and rightfully so. You know, the night crowd or you know these big crowds are always favoring. You know, the legends and you know. Uh, I mean, and Venus is special. I mean, Venus's story, if not for Sloan Stevens, I would say Venus is the story of the tournament. No, no, it's it's true. I mean, nothing to take away from the Venuses and the Federers of the world, but I'm just saying I was very impressed how she blocked that crowd and, you know, made her own say in that match. And uh, it was I, I one think of the she won the, the tournament. tournament. She won the tournament right there, right, Sakib? I mean, the way she came through that match, I mean, the belief that she would have got out of that, I don't think, I mean, I agreed Madison Keys also has a very powerful, imposing game. But she hadn't gone through that kind of, as you said, the, the, the crowd-related trauma, right? Going up against an entire stadium. I mean... When you come up against an opponent who's just gone through that and then you face her and you're still playing your first Grand Slam final, uh, I, I think that's where Sloane Stevens became the clear favorite as soon as she won that Venus Williams match. Do you think playing a close friend hurt Madison? Now, again, it's one of those hindsight comments, uh, you know. I actually don't think it hurt, hurt either of them. I mean, we make too much of a big deal of friends playing against each other. These are big stakes. These are Grand Slam tournaments. Um, I, I can see siblings having issues, and I know the Williams sisters had problems early on. But by the way, Serena Williams, I think, was always competitive against Venus Williams. She hated losing even to her own sister. Um, but friendship, I think, can wait. <laughs> they can have those drinks right after they, you know, one of them wins. 
Uh, fair enough. And, uh, you know, Serena Williams, Venus Williams came along, uh, you know, almost, what, 18, 19 years ago, 20 years ago. And there was another player who's still doing pretty good in doubles, your favorite, Martina Hingis. What a phenomenal weekend she had. Incredible. Just incredible. Um, I, I think she's dominating both the doubles and the mixed doubles tour. Um, and what is amazing is she changes partners and it, does, it doesn't change who the, end, the winner is. In the end, it is always Martina yeah, She had this chemistry with Pays and then Mirza. And now she's doing the same, you know, with Jamie Murray. I mean, she's two for two. With Chan. Yeah, Chan. Yeah, definitely. She, I mean, I got to, you know, see her... Uh, this U.S. Open, uh, what a treat it is to just uh, watch her courtside. I mean, come to think of it, um, she won the U.S. Open in 1997. I mean, this this is truly an incredible story, right? Uh, somebody who wins at the age of 16, still playing the sport and still winning, still not just winning, dominating. So before we conclude, Saqib, I mean, there's one thing uh, that was kind of annoying at me. And so I wanted to ask you, it's about Uncle Tony. First, let me just say this. It's his last tournament with Rafa as a coach. Let's start with Tony Nadal. He's not your uncle. (laughs) (laughs) He's uncle to all of us. Um, So, but I mean, an amazing, I mean, arguably one of the greatest coaches in sports history, right? Um, But I I want to ask you a question, uh, what Uncle Tony said. (laughs) I knew this was coming. (laughs) (laughs) So he thinks that Rafa is probably going to make it to 20. At least I think he said he'll make it to 19. Um, And I personally think he's right. Uh, What do you think? Uh, But did he say that Federer is going to stay at 19? (laughs) Well, I don't know. I don't recall what he said about Roger. I I think 19 is the number right now, so... Look, I mean, uh, this is fine. I mean, they've created something special. You know, Nadal was left for the for for the dead. I mean, most people thought that he's not winning. Uh, he hasn't won a hardcore even 250 event since uh, I think uh, Doha in 2014. So yeah, I mean, he can say that he's entitled to that, and I'm sure that's the goal. Uh, you know, Tony more than Rafa has never been shy about that. You know, they want to get there. Uh, look, the narrative changes very fast in men's tennis. I've used the word narrative I think six, seven times. So. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, even Federer, you know, like when he came back this year, most people thought the comeback would come full circle at Wimbledon, but he had an early start and they both, you know, end the year with, you know, the math stayed the same. 17-14 became 19-16. Definitely in the recency effect, you know, Nadal, we have to believe that uh, this thing can lead to like, you know, good things. But at the same time, you know, we don't know what is going to happen in four or five months. I'm more interested uh, in seeing, you know, Australian Open slam by slam. Uh, and will Nadal get there? He can. I mean, after yesterday, you have to agree that, you know, he might have one more slam outside of French Open. And uh, But then there'll be other people who will be playing a very important role in this, uh, named Zverev, Djokovic, and some other guys. Zverev again, really. So, yeah, I mean, let's revisit this in Australia. I think it's a very it's very tempting to say yes or otherwise say no, because I think Federer's still playing good. If back stays healthy, he manages himself. And Australian Open, everybody's saying, played the fastest this year. Who knows? Federer repeats there. I mean, that's also not out of the question. Let's not forget, Federer beat Nadal three times and pretty much looked like the best player till Wimbledon since his back. And then Nadal coming, winning the US Open, the conversation slightly changes. And that's what, you know, that's what the, is, is the best part of, you know, this is reality TV at its very best. It is. And I think a lot of this, and we have to say this again and again, a lot of this depends on Djokovic's frame of mind and how he comes back. Because if Djokovic is anywhere close to his best, I think both Rafa and Roger have a job on their hands. 
All right. On that note, let's uh, you know let's talk soon with you guys. And uh, we have a couple of good podcasts that we haven't released, and one I think which we plan to release next week is uh, our chat with Manuela Maliva, who is part of the the former Grand Slam semifinalist. Yeah, all three sisters uh, were top ten players, so that's a very good conversation that we have saved for a rainy day, and uh, we should uh, we shall release that next week. Uh, once again, thanks for listening to these podcasts, and you know keep sharing this with your friends as this is still a...